want to dive back into the book of Esther. I'm going to do this week and next week to kind of uh, finish this up as we've been asking God to kind of teach us through the example of Esther about uh, uh, standing up and uh, allowing God to use us uh, to, to make a difference. And, uh, I want to kind of focus uh, this morning on, on, on waiting to stand. And you've perhaps heard or even said timing is everything, right? Timing is everything. I mean, we know that. Uh, uh, the timing of a, of a shot in an athletic contest can make all the difference in the world. Sometimes just a, a split second can make a huge, huge difference. A comic delivering a, a line, uh, timing matters so much. Maybe you've been in a crucial conversation and you've uh, said the right thing, but you said it at the wrong time, and, and it kind of it blew up instead of uh, helping out along the way. Uh, one of my personal theories is that even in the world of politics, I'm convinced that, that timing is, is so important and that there are people who probably got elected uh, just because they were running kind of at the right time. There were some folks that probably were eminently qualified who didn't get elected because they just happened to be running at the wrong time. One example of that is a Washington outsider. Perhaps you know who this is. Is He was campaigning for office, this future president, who had never served in Washington, said about himself, I've been accused of being an outsider. I plead guilty. Unfortunately, the vast majority of Americans are also outsiders. Know who that is? Not Donald Trump. <laughs> It's actually President Jimmy Carter. President Jimmy Carter. And I am convinced that he may be a great example of what some have called the law of timing. Carter had never held an office uh, in Washington. In fact, is he was so obscure, so unknown that he was a one-term uh, state senator from Georgia, one-term governor from Georgia. Three years before he was elected president, he appeared on the, the, uh, the TV show, Whose Line Is It? And they didn't know who he was and couldn't guess what he did for a living, right? And yet three years later, he is the president of the United States, in part because of the timing. Because what was going on in the world at that time? We were coming, coming out of the Vietnam War, and there was a great kind of angst and uh, uh, hurt and hangover of that, multiplied by what had gone on in the presidency of Richard Nixon and the whole Watergate scandal and all of that. And so there was just this, this, this sense that, that we didn't want the same old, same old anymore. It was just a mess. And so the time was ripe for an outsider. And so this un known kind of comes from the peanut fields of Georgia and becomes the president of the United States. Unfortunately for Carter, the kind of the law of timing worked against him four years later. Four years later, the country was in an economic downturn. Four years later, although he had kind of uh, been instrumental in bringing Egypt and Israel uh, together, internationally there was a mess. The Soviet Union had aided, uh, invaded Afghanistan. If some of you are way too young to remember, but uh, there was in Iran a radical element that had kidnapped uh, Americans and held them hostage for uh, months and months and months. 
And Carter administration tried to uh, broker a rescue attempt, and it was a ill-conceived operation that ultimately failed and cost U.S. servicemen their life and didn't rescue uh, any of the, the hostages. And all of that was going on. And this one who had been elected in large part because of timing suffered the worst defeat electoral-wise uh, in the Electoral College for an incumbent president because of the law of timing as Ronald Reagan defeated him and Jimmy Carter only got 49 electoral votes. A lot of it had to do with timing. In our walk with God, timing matters. Timing matters. Ecclesiastes says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. It goes on to give example after example. There's a time for this and a time for this. There's a time to speak. There's a time to remain silent. And as we, we walk through the pages of Scripture, we find men and women who, who understood that God's timing matters. They, they maybe didn't get it initially, but they came to recognize that, that God's timing matters and that we want to get in on God's timing. And Esther as a great example of someone who learned to wait before standing up. She learned to, to wait on God's timing. And so what I want us to see in this fifth chapter of Esther this morning is a contrast. A contrast between uh, Esther and her patient dependence and Haman and his prideful independence. A Esther's patient dependence and Haman's prideful independence. And maybe to say, God... Which of these are showing up more and more in my life right now? So let's dive into the text and then just to, to kind of remind ourselves, Esther is, starts off waiting before the Lord. So between chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the book of Esther, Esther and others are seeking the Lord through prayer and fasting. It began with Mordecai and others, but, but Esther has kind of pulled this group together, let the word go out among the Jews for three days. For three days we're going to intensely seek the Lord. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk into the king's presence, and I don't know what's going to happen, but if I perish, I perish. But it's going to begin as I wait and seek the Lord intensely through prayer and fasting. And that, that's part of the, the rhythm that needs to be in all of our lives, a, a waiting before the Lord, a seeking of the Lord. Some of you may, may be like me. I have this scripture in my office. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That there is something that happens to men and women as they, they learn to, to wait before the Lord. As you and I wait before the Lord, God does some things. One of the things that God does is God renews our strength. That God renews our strength. That our strength shall be renewed. That we can grow weary in well-doing. We can grow, grow weary of, of the assignment we can have. We can grow weary sometimes of the resistance that we feel. We, we we can go weary sometimes of other people and their choices and, and the things that they do and maybe even the way that they treat us and all of these things that we go through at times. Maybe you get weary of the bureaucracy you have to work through every day and it begins to sap our strength. Or maybe it's just some of the challenges you're facing in life. And there are times that I just need God to renew my strength. 
to renew my strength. And as I spend time in his presence, in his word, waiting before the Lord, God renews our strength. But God will also renew our perspective. He'll renew our perspective. He talks about mounting up with wings like eagles. And the eagles are just this, this incredible uh, creation of God. And, and we think about that, that, per, that perspective shift that happens, that, that there are times we need to, to mount up with wings like eagles, right? We need to get above the trees. And sometimes we get so, so confused, we get, kind of get lost in the, in the forest with the trees, and we get, we get muddled our vision, we forget what we're doing and why we're doing it. And sometimes we need to be lifted up to the proverbial 30,000 foot level or something, right? We, we need to get up there, and we need, we need our perspective changed. Eagles have that incredible vision. And they can spot an animal running uh, on, the fo- on the floor uh, of, of the ground or underneath the trees so far, far away. They can be floating high above and, and see below the surface of the water a fish and make this incredible dive to get it. And I need God to do that in my life. I need God to help lift me above the trees so I can see things I wouldn't normally see. I need God to help me to see sometimes below the surface of a situation to be able to understand something from his perspective. And that comes as I wait upon the Lord, that I mount up with those eagle's wings. But God also renews our perseverance as we wait upon him. Our perseverance. Because oftentimes what God calls us to is not just a a momentary sprint. But it's, it, it is a continual slog at times, it feels like. It's day after day after day, sometimes hour after hour after hour, and we keep showing up and we keep pouring out. And sometimes it feels like we're maybe not making pros- progress or not making it fast enough. And I need God's ability to persevere. I need to understand that it's not always just this sprint, uh, but very often it's a marathon that God has called me to, and I need a capacity, even beyond myself, to be able to persevere. And what Isaiah reminds us, what the example of Esther's and other remind us, is that as I wait upon the Lord, as I learn to wait upon the Lord, He renews my strength. He renews my perspective. He renews my capacity for perseverance along the way. And so Esther and all of them are waiting upon the Lord. But don't think waiting upon the Lord means I'm, I'm totally passive. Because as, as we see these events begin to unfold, we understand that as she waited, she planned. She planned in God's presence. And that's a vital part of waiting before the Lord. Verse 1, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now, please understand, she's not, she's not going in haphazard here. She, she's thought this through as she's waited before the Lord. And she says, she's not going to just show up and just, oh, let me just throw on something real quick and go into his presence. No, she, she, she gets decked out in the royal robes, right? This is a power suit, right? I mean, I mean she, she intentionally chooses what I'm going to wear, intentionally 
intentionally chooses the time I'm going to show up, intentionally has planned where I'm going to stand, where the king is going to be, and how I'm going to position myself. And, and all of this has come as she has understood and waited before the Lord. The psalmist said, I will instruct you, the message of God, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Think about that. Think about that. God has said, I, I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. It, is that not an awesome invitation? To think that as I wait upon the Lord, I am putting myself in a position to be instructed, to be taught, to be directed, to be counseled by the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so as I wait, he helps me to think. He helps me to, to plan in his presence. But not only was she planning in his presence, but as she waited, she prepared. She was preparing in anticipation of God's activity. Let's go ahead and jump to verse 4, and then we'll put it all together here in a moment. And Esther said, she's talking to the king, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Now notice that phrase, I have prepared for the king. She is coming into his presence. She has no guarantee uh, that, that, that she's even going to live, that he's going to allow her to speak. She hasn't been in his presence for 30 days, as we saw last week. But, but she's coming, and this holy anticipation that God is at work, and so she has already prepared this feast. She's already made preparations for this feast because she did so planning in the presence of God, preparing for God to move. She understood that ultimately, ultimately, as the proverb says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. And so as she's waiting before the Lord, she, she begins to, to sense with anticipation, this is what God's going to do. And she makes preparation for that. And, and all of that flows out of waiting before the Lord. And as she's waiting before the Lord, she, she begins to understand this is the next step to take. And she acted with a courageous trust. So they've been praying. They've been seeking the Lord. She's planning. She's thinking it through. She's made preparations in anticipation of God, uh, God's uh, speaking and moving. But ultimately, she's got to take that step. Verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, again, we know the story, so we don't feel the tension. But she is praying, she is preparing, she is planning, but she doesn't know. She doesn't know until she actually takes that courageous step, that step of obedience, that step of faith, that step of trust, to step into the king's presence, whether she's going to live or not. 
She doesn't know whether he will extend the scepter to her or have her removed from his presence. But she acts. And there comes that time that waiting before the Lord enables us to take a step, to act with courageous trust, but to do it in God's timing, to do it in God's timing. And what we find is that she is walking all along the way in God's timing. So the order is given, come to the feast, verse 6. As they were drinking wine after the feast, this is probably like the, the, the last course, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. I mean, this sounds like a, you can't get the door more wide open than this, right? Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to a feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. What? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Esther, hello? The door is wide open. You've fattened him up. (laughs) He's well fed. Little wine has flowed. He said, up to half my kingdom. Go, go, go. But the timing wasn't yet right. How did she know? Well, some have suggested she was just following royal protocol that you had to have so many banquets. Or some have suggested that maybe she was trying to to set up a little tension between the king and Haman and make the the king a little suspicious of Haman along the way by uh, continually inviting just the two of them. I I think some of those may be be a part of it, but I, I think she was just so in step with God's timing. Because as we'll continue to follow the narrative next week, we'll see that that God had a couple of other pieces that he was going to be bringing into place. And before the time was absolutely at its best, she had to wait. You see, just because there's an open door doesn't mean it's the right time to step through it. I know there are folks that always say, well, if if the door is open, step through it, right? That that's God's sign, the door's open. I think God is more interested in us living in such a vital connectedness, a vital union to Jesus Christ, that we don't just rely on open and closed doors, but we walk in obedience to him. We walk in his timing. And yes, I pay attention to the door, but I also want to pay attention to God's timing. And so Esther Yes, she takes a step of courageous trust. And yes, probably everything in her wanted to kind of point to Haman right then and say, this guy. But she walked in God's timing. And to walk in God's timing demands that I am regularly, consistently waiting before the Lord. And what Esther demonstrates for us is this principle I I just kind of want to lift before us this morning. And that is waiting before the Lord enables me to stand up as never before. Waiting before the Lord enables me to stand up 
to stand up and let God use me as never, ever before. And there, there are times that, that all of us, we can operate out of the flesh. We can operate out of our timing. We, we can operate out of, I've been there. I've done that. I know how to do this. And we, we can get busy and we can, can push it to the, the floor because that's kind of how we're wired. And we can go and go and go. And there's opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And we feel like these are all open doors. And I have to step through all of them at the same time. And I need to come back and realize, oh, God, oh, God, I'm going to be most powerfully used by you. I am going to most fulfill your purposes and plans for my life when I wait before you. And as I wait before you, you shape my character. You direct my steps. You give me the cadence of timing. You give me wisdom and discernment. You renew my strength. You renew my perspective. You renew my capacity for perseverance. Waiting before the Lord enables me to stand up as never before. And can I just maybe encourage some of you today? Some of you, 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 you do a lot. You charge hard. You take great pride even in a healthy sense, uh, uh, excitement of checking things off the list, right? It's almost a game that I get more done today than I did yesterday. I know some of us are wired that way, right? But you can do a lot and not do the best. You can be busy and not be in the center of God's will. In fact, as I, I, the, the longer I, I walk before the Lord, uh, imperfectly for sure, the more I am convinced that the enemy of our soul doesn't mind us being busy. Particularly if in that busyness we begin to lose connectedness with the Lord. If in our busyness the thing that consistently gets pushed out is time before the Lord. Waiting before the Lord enables me to stand up as never before because then I'm not doing it in the flesh. Then I'm not doing it in my strength, but I'm doing it out of the overflow of a vital union with him. That's the example of Esther, this patient dependence upon the Lord. The antithesis was Haman. Haman exhibited a prideful independence. And, and as we walk through these next few verses, we'll do that quickly, but I want to ask you to do something this morning. Because sometimes when we, we come to kind of a section of Scripture describing uh, kind of the villain Haman, a lot of times what we, we just want to say is, oh, well, I can see how he really blew it. Oh, yeah, well, he had problems. But can I invite you today to just be open and say, God, would you <laughs> graciously, because it is an act of his grace, show me, show me anywhere in my life that I might be operating a little more like Haman than I am like Esther. Right? So just kind of, don't just, don't just look at the villain, but just allow God to maybe shine some of that light and, and reveal anything in us it might look a little more like Haman and a little less like Esther. 
First thing we see in Haman is that pride needs to be noticed. Pride needs to be noticed. Verse 9, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Wasn't that a fun dinner party, right? <laughs> Y'all come on over and let me tell you how great I am, right? Let me tell you about all the promotions I've had. Let me tell you about how great my family is. And, and you know, I, I hate to mention it, but did, did, I, did I tell you I just came from dinner with the king and the queen? And, and a little name dropping, by the way. I'm, I'm going back tomorrow. I just want to just throwing it out there, just throwing it out there, right? Pride needs to be noticed, doesn't it? It needs to be noticed. And, and I understand we all, we all want to be appreciated, and that's that we want to appreciate one another. But pride has this, this kind of insatiable need to be noticed. And I, I won't get off on a rant here because I, I don't pretend to fully understand it. But sometimes I, I just wonder what drives so much of social media, right? I know I'm like getting in trouble here, right? And I know you can do the same thing for two entirely different motives, and I, I can't tell anybody's motive by what picture they put online. But, but sometimes it's like, gosh, what's driving that? What's driving this, this need to continually post pictures of my toes and what I'm eating and all these things, right? I don't know. Pride needs to be noticed. You can post a picture without sinful pride. I'm not saying that. But pride needs to be noticed. Not only that, but pride can rob us of the capacity for enjoyment and happiness. Look at the very next verse. I mean, he's sitting on top of the world. He has this position. He has these connections. He's been feasting all of these things, verse 13. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. <laughs> He's got all of these things, but, but in my pride, pride sometimes keeps me from being able to enjoy. It keeps me from being able to enjoy what God has entrusted to me. Oh, thank you, God, for this car. It's reliable. It's wonderful. It gets me from point A to B until I see the car they're driving. <laughs> God, what a great vacation. It was so relaxing and it's so good. We got a little time away as a family. Until I see pictures of their vacation, where they got to go, what they got to do. And if we're not careful, pride can rob us of the capacity for enjoyment and happiness. An enjoyment, a happiness, a fulfillment in what God has entrusted to us for this season of our life. Pride can rob us of that capacity. 
Pride can cause us to resent others. So verse 9, we already read that. So he's got all these things going on in his life, and yet one guy, one guy is not responding to him the way he thinks he was, and he says his, his wrath, he's just filled with this wrath against Mordecai, that pride oftentimes results in resentment, resentment toward other people when they don't give us what we want, Right? I have this expectation that this is what I should get, this is what I need, this is what I deserve, and if you don't give me what I think I deserve, then I begin to harbor resentment. And that can happen in a business environment, that can happen in a church environment, that can happen in your family. When they don't give us what we want, what in our pride we have convinced ourselves we deserve, resentment, bitterness begin to take root. Sometimes that resentment is when somebody has what we don't have. They got the promotion we didn't get. They don't have the struggle I'm having to deal with. They got this. I don't have that. And resentment, pride can cause us to resent other people. And what Haman just displays for us is the truth of the, pro, the, the, the proverb uh, of, of how, how our, our pride can, can just bring destruction and ultimately even can cause us to attack other people, to attack other people. Look at the next couple of verses, verse 13. He talks about uh, all this is worth nothing. Verse 14, then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now, there's something real sick about that, right? Let's just, let's just kill this guy, and that idea pleased him. <laughs> and I'll go joyfully to the feast, right? And now just a quick distinction here, just kind of some context. When you read Gallows and Esther, we already seen that earlier with Bigthan and, and that crew, and you'll see it again in a little bit. Gallows can also be, be translated a spike, if you will. And so don't, don't think Western gallows like hang them with a noose. Uh, but, but this was more that the Persians tended to use in impaling. And they, they would impale a body uh, and certainly would cause incredible pain. And then they would kind of hang it for display. And th this, this hanging, this, this spike, uh, would, in some sense, was the, the precursor of what we would see later with the Romans in crucifixion. And, and so the, the purpose of this isn't just to kill Mordecai. But it, it is for pain. It is for humiliation. And so he's going to put this thing up really high. And I don't, I don't think this is like a 75-foot uh, stake. It probably is more about it. it was set up on this, in this location, this hill, so that it was so high. So that when they, when they hung his body upon it, it was going to be evident. It was going to be on huge, huge display. See, pride can cause us to do that. Pride can cause us to attack others. Now, my guess is, my hope is, nobody here has impaled anybody this week, right? That's not the way that we normally do it. And yet, pride can cause us to attack, can it? Pride can cause us to slander. Pride can cause us to drop some innuendos. Pride can 
show forth in our body language, in the way that we respond when somebody's name is mentioned, right? Pride can show up in the put-downs or the freezing-outs. So we can attack others in a wide variety of ways. Haman is the embodiment of that proverb. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And we'll see that play out next week. But as we transition away from this to to one other observation, I want to just leave you with those two questions. And it may serve us well just to spend some time in God's presence with these. Where, Where, God, am I most like Haman today? Where am I operating in the flesh? Where am I operating out of pride? How is that showing up in the relationships of my life? How is that showing up and robbing me of the capacity to enjoy the good things you've given me in my life? And then, God, where do I most need to follow the model of Esther? What would it look like for me to build rhythms in my life of waiting before you? What would it be like for maybe me occasionally to take even an extended time uh, to seek you? and wait before you. And when we think about that, I, I want to put a, put a context here. For you and I on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ and the amazing invitation that we have, Hebrews puts it this way, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Think about that. Think about that for just a moment, what that says. Here's Esther, and she's, she's coming before this, this powerful king with fear and trepidation, and she doesn't know if she's going to be received. She doesn't know if she's going to be welcomed. She doesn't know if she's actually even going to live the rest of the day. What kind of mood is he in? But you and I, you and I have this incredible invitation to come before the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you don't have to worry what kind of mood is he in today. You don't have to worry whether he'll receive you today or not. That he has said, come, because of the the shed blood of Jesus Christ, draw near with confidence so you may receive mercy and find grace to help in my time of need. With an invitation like that, how much more important, more vital is it for you and I to build rhythms into our lives where we are waiting before the Lord because we get to come before a king. John Newton, the the author of the lyrics for Amazing Grace, put it this way, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. His grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. How about that for an invitation? You get to come before the king, and you know he is not going to deny you. And as you come before him, you can bring the largest of petitions, because his grace and his power are such that you can never, ever ask too much. 
I started this morning with a politician. Let me end with one. Because I think in some ways this politician who had a connection with John Newton is the embodiment of the principle waiting before the Lord enables me to stand up as never before. Many of you know his name, William Wilberforce. At 4 a.m. on February 24, 1807, the British Parliament overwhelmingly voted to abolish the slave trade and then rose almost to a man and turned toward William Wilberforce in a burst of parliamentary cheers while he sat, head bowed, tears streaming down his face. Because this moment, this moment was the culmination of 20 years, 20 years of relentless, determined, personal, and legislative exertion to bring this evil trade to an end. And while it was a huge victory, Wilberforce would fight for another 26 years until the evil of slavery itself was defeated. Parliament voted to emancipate slaves three days before Wilberforce's death on July 29, 1833. Where did Wilberforce get the capacity? the strength, the perspective, the perseverance to do that. Well, it didn't come natural. In fact, in his younger years, he was basically a spoiled brat. He had inherited a lot of money. He went off to college. He was basically a socialite, the life of the party, had some singing talent, uh, did well with people. And as he would later say, his focus was really on himself. On a whim, at 21 years old, he decided to run for parliament. He self-financed to the tune of about a half a million dollars in today's dollars. And he ended up winning. (laughs) But he had no agenda, no purpose, no direction. The only thing he cared about was himself and keeping himself in the spotlight. That is until he met Jesus Christ. And when he met Jesus Christ, everything changed. And he began to understand. He began to understand that that the resources he had, the the platform he had, the influence he had was something to be stewarded. It was to be stewarded for God's will and God's best and God's agenda and God's kingdom. And suddenly his life had focus and his life had purpose. And he began to invest in in this combating of this, this slave trade. And the first part, 20 years, 20 years to end the trading of slaves another 26 years to set free all those who had already been enslaved. And it cost him money, and it cost him friends, and it cost him influence, and it cost him his health, and it cost him so many things. And where do you get the strength to stand up and let God use you like that? You get it. Waiting before the Lord. John Newton encouraged him. This is God's calling on your life. Walk with him. 
John Wesley, just a few days before he, he died, wrote, wrote uh, Wilberforce this letter, unless the divine power has raised you up to be as Athanasius against the world, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing this villainy, which is the scandal of religion, of England, of the human nature, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of His might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. Wilberforce would write, in the calmness of the morning, before the mind is heated and weary by the turmoil of the day, you have a season of unusual importance for communing with God and with yourself. Because what Esther reminds us, what Wilberforce reminds us, what countless men and women through the ages remind us is that waiting before the Lord enables me to stand up as never before. Let's go before him together in prayer, please. Oh, Father, teach us to wait. <laughs> Father, you know that some of us <laughs> need strength renewed today. Some of us need a renewal of our vision, our perspective. Father, some of us need a renewed capacity for perseverance because we're just, we're in a marathon. Father, today, today we just want to say, I don't want to do it in my own strength. I want to do it in the flesh, Lord. I want to do it in your strength. I want to do it in the flow of a vital union with Jesus Christ. So what's it going to look like for you and I to build, to protect, to prioritize the rhythms of our life so that we wait before the Lord. And then, then we can stand up as never before. There's some questions in the note-taking guide that may be helpful to make this very personal for you. And I hope that's not just a minute or two here this morning, but maybe something you'll allow the Lord to just stir in you over these next few days. To teach you, to call you, to reprioritize before you, seeking Him. If we can help you as a church family, we want to do that. That's why we dedicated it.